I'm Alka Khuri and host of the podcast South Asian Films and Books. I'm also a faculty at the University of Washington Bothell teaching film literature gender and human rights. In South Asian Films and Books, I'm going to look at how South Asian writers and filmmakers explore some of the major issues and help us make sense of the world that we inhabit. From politics to culture, each episode looks at a topic that impacts and shapes the lives of people living in South Asia and its diasporas. This is South Asian Films and Books, an original podcast broadcast from Seattle. Subscribe to South Asian Films and Books as soon as possible so you don't miss a single episode. My guest today is Dr. Lamia Karim, professor and head of the Department of Anthropology at the University of Oregon. Dr. Karim is a widely published and award-winning cultural anthropologist working on women, work, neoliberalism, state, and Islam in Bangladesh. I'll be talking with Dr. Karim today about her latest book, Castoffs of Capital: Work and Love Among Garment Workers in Bangladesh. Published in 2022, her book brings a feminist labor studies lens to garment workers' aspirations, not only as workers but as mothers, wives, sisters, lovers, friends and political agents. In other words, she looks at them in the totality of their humanity. Most importantly, the book provides a visceral personal analysis of how global capitalism targets poor women, particularly of the global south to advance neoliberal capitalist ambitions. In addition, the book focuses on older, aged out women, providing a much needed analysis of the intersection between work, gender, and age. Dr. Karim joins me from Eugene, Oregon. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's my it's my pleasure. Thank you for joining. Talk about what inspired you to write this book. It was early 2014 when I went to Bangladesh after the 2013 Rana Plaza industrial collapse. I'm sure your listeners have heard about it when the 8-story Rana Plaza building collapsed on itself killing over 1100 garment workers and 2500 workers that were injured. So at that time I was in Bangladesh a little later and I was trying to find a new topic and I have heard about the horrific conditions inside these factories for a long time so I started meeting with garment workers and I had several focused group interviews where i found that almost all the workers i met were young women below the age of 30 in most cases so i asked them that don't you have older women workers i mean where are women in their 40s or 50s in the factories and they said they just leave and i found that a strange answer to my question so i looked around a little bit more i asked trade union leaders labor rights activists uh, the reps of the international labor organization in bangladesh and also talked to historians of labor both in south asia and outside about this missing part of what i call feminist labor history these older women were not there and everywhere i went i was told that uh, that's a good question we don't track them once they leave the formal labor force That's when I said to myself that this is something that needs to be researched and written about. It's an important part of women's work lives, and yet we don't know what happens to these women when they leave the factory work. 
how do they live? Their life doesn't end when their factory jobs end. They have many more years of life left. Are they able to work? Do they have savings? Did they accumulate some skills that are transferable to maybe starting a tailoring shop or a little, you know, something for themselves to survive? And that's what brought me to this research. Talk about how, as you say in your book, the ways in which framing women workers within the context of their relationship with men as mothers, wives, lovers, etc. How does it help articulate the totality of their humanity? When I started the research and I started looking at articles written about garment workers, and if you do a Google search, you'll find thousands of articles on garment workers in Bangladesh. And almost all of them are talking about workers through the lens of factory work. They're looking at them as working machines. They're looking at them in terms of workers trapped in horrific conditions inside factories with very low wages, you know, poor health, diet, etc. But none of them were looking at them outside of what it means to be a worker and a woman and a person. And that's when I started to think about who are these women? Is the work life what defines them? Or there's something outside of that that matters to them? And I wanted to, in this book, I really wanted to humanize these women, not as working machines, but as human subjects in the fullness of their desires of who they want to be, what they're hoping for. And when I look at that, I realize that in the West, we have a tendency to look at subjects as sole agents, the autonomous, sovereign subject going out there, working in a factory, but not in terms of their relationships to other institutions. In this case, their relationship to their families, right? The broader context within which they work, their husbands, their uh, parents, their siblings, all of these relationships decide for them who they can be and what they can hope for. Because these relationships are reciprocal and they pose a lot of obligations on these women. So when a wage-earning factory woman goes out and makes money, it's not her money alone. It belongs to her husband if she's married, and all the women I interviewed were heterosexual women. Or if she's unmarried, it belongs to her parents. They all make demands on it. So she's never an autonomous subject. Society, too, pushes her back into that. That said, there are many women who trespass, and my book documents some of those stories where they trespass against social expectations, but then they're punished severely because society casts them aside if they don't follow the norms. So in order to understand these women again, I think we need to see them in the kinds of institutional structures, social structures they have to operate within. And I think that tells us more about their agentive roles because they're navigating those spaces, sometimes successfully, sometimes disastrously, but they're still doing that, right? And that to me is hopeful that people work against the imposition of rules and that prevent them from doing things. You talk very movingly about the sexual impoverishment of Bangladeshi garment workers. 
Do you think it results from patriarchy's prioritization of men's sexual fulfillment over women's sexual desire or sexual aspirations? Or do you think it's also tied to the spread of global capitalism? Is there such a thing as too much of an emphasis on the material lives of women workers? And if so, does this in some way disregard an entire part of their womanhood? Firstly, it is definitely how patriarchy operates in Bangladesh. And as we know, patriarchy takes different forms. In the context that I studied, men's roles are as breadwinners. They are supposed to be taking care of the family. Women's roles are as nurturers, caregivers. They're subordinate to the men. But global capital also intervenes in this relationship, which is already toxic to have this kind of a relationship where men are breadwinners, women are not. And when global patriarchy intervenes in this arrangement, it looks at the brown woman in these developing countries as profitable in terms of bringing her into the workspace, paying her very low wages. Women tend not to speak out as much as men, which is one reason capital prefers women workers over men. And they can really exploit these women as long as they can work or as long as the factory management wants them. So there is this intersection between the patriarchy of the husbands and brothers and fathers of these women and the way global capital is, quote unquote, freeing the women from the bondages of patriarchal rural life, but thrusting them into the patriarchy of the capitalist firm, right? The factory floor. One thing that happens here is that Bangladeshi men, and I'm talking about this group of men, not all categories of men, they feel also an enormous economic impoverishment. They can no longer work as breadwinners, right? Because they are not the ones that the factories are looking for. So suddenly they see that the women from their peer group are being brought into factory work, whereas they are left behind. And so there's a tremendous gender-based envy that I recorded among the men. But that's because of the way capitalist patriarchy is working. It's looking at women not to free them, but because they're cheap for them, right? So that creates a toxic relationship between these women and the men in their lives. In terms of the material conditions, that's a very important part of your question, is that we tend to think of working-class women, factory workers, in terms of their material lives, what is it that they have? But their emotional, amorous life that is an integral part of their lives that we seem to ignore. And that is what I found that these women were talking about initially. When I asked them about what brought them to factory work, they said, in the village, I could not eat. But now that I am in a factory, I can eat, I can feed my children, I could not feed them in the village. I had a broken home, a mud home in the village. Now I can think about perhaps making a brick house. But then you push that conversation and keep on asking them, what is it that they want? And they kept on telling me, I want a good life, which in Bengali means shundor jibon. And I asked them to define the good life for me. And then they, at first they said, it's about being a pious Muslim woman, a dutiful daughter, a good mother, a good wife. And then I pushed them more. And then they started talking about themselves. I said, what is it that you want? Beyond all this, what is it that you want? And I think the most moving thing that came across was when one woman said to me, 
that you're the first person who has asked me about my love life. And she pointed at her arm and she said to me, my broken arm may mend one day, but my broken heart will never bend. And I, I think that was it's a very powerful uh, moment for me. And I just looked at her and I was like, this is what I need to write about. This is what we don't know. If we can see these women as full human subjects, like you and me, middle-class women, then I think we can do a lot more for them. Do you think there is some kind of an awareness of the need to surface one's inner life, one's sexual life, one's emotional life, in a way that it wasn't, let's say, 20, 30 years ago? Like you see this kind of a representation, not just representation in cinema and literature, but also mm. in daily conversations. And I also mm. wonder whether... Of course, it probably doesn't apply in the case of your subjects. But I also wonder whether online feminism has had some kind of a, a role to play in this. So my question is, do you think this is happening as a result of a global trend among women across class boundaries, across all kinds of boundaries, to talk about themselves, to center their own desires? Definitely among the younger women, more than the older women, because the younger women are exposed to a lot of media messages, such as they all watch Indian serials, Bollywood movies on their day off. That's one source of entertainment for them. So they are getting a lot of these messages about women's desires, explicit or sometimes not so explicit. And you will see that among the younger women, and I have interviewed some of them, they're more outspoken about their desires. The older women also have these desires, but their language is more coded. Uh, many of them are a bit embarrassed to talk about it, but this is in the privacy of their room with me and usually my research assistants. And we create a sense of trust and make them feel like it's okay to talk about it. But it's not something that the older women will openly talk about until and unless they form a level of trust with you. But I definitely will say that it is a part of a global movement that I'm seeing with people becoming more open about these issues, especially among the younger workers. But I will say that to love and to want to be loved is a human emotion. It's a very primal emotion. And for these women, they're only supposed to love and care for others. And it doesn't matter whether people care for them or not, right? And that is part of the story that needs to come out. And I'm hoping that people, when they read the book, will go back and to their own research uh, material and try to ask other kinds of questions of women workers. The discussion of the capitalist fast fashion trend cycles in your research is particularly interesting. Since one could argue that it's a result of capitalist patriarchy preying on the desires of the mostly Western young women and girls to fit in, or almost always at the expense of women and girls of the global south. And of course, it's obvious that women and girls of the global south suffer far more and in every aspect of their lives compared to their counterparts in the global north. It's still interesting to see how capitalist patriarchy harms women globally. Where does the cognitive dissonance come from in regard to the middle-class Western women who might consider themselves to be feminists, but who still continue to shop in major clothing stores? Well, that's a difficult uh, question uh, because I think that uh, 
Western women who are feminists do think about the workers. But it's a question of how they're thinking about the workers. And that's why I'm saying that uh, don't think of them as these sad creatures, right, who need your help in some way, but think of them as full human subjects. I would say that it's a difficult thing because I will never argue for boycotting brands that are making clothes and profiting from the work of these poor women because these poor women are better off materially through factory work. And they have had other avenues that have opened up for them as a result of that. But I think I will ask people to educate themselves. When they walk into a Walmart or they walk into Old Navy and they buy a piece of clothing for very little money, $3, $5, which they may use for two days. Fast fashion changes now every two weeks and throw it away. So there are two things here. Not only are you buying clothes that have been manufactured at rock bottom prices, at the same time, you're creating an enormous environmental issue from all the waste, from all these clothes that are piling up in various places because we just throw them away, right? So there is that we also have to understand. And I think environmental feminism or ecofeminism has to enter this discourse as well. It is a tough thing to change these patterns of production and also consumption, but it can be done. At my university, students organized protests against Nike a while back, and they said that, you know, the factory conditions are very bad. We will not buy Nike shoes and clothes, and Nike is the biggest donor to the University of Oregon. And, you know, after that, they did go back and, you know, upgrade some of their factories in Malaysia. And I don't know where those factories are now, but that is one way we can hold corporations accountable for what they're doing in other parts of the world. We need more investigative journalism. We need more podcasts like yours. And we need people to become educated consumers. I'd like to move to the theme of sexual harassment. It was very upsetting to read about Selena's story, a 32-year-old worker who stood up for women workers who are victims of sexual harassment. And we know that the ramifications of speaking out against sexual harassment are daunting across the world, but they are particularly exacerbated for women who depend on what little wages they get. So talk about how women and girls who hesitate speaking up for themselves straddle on the one hand the need to create a workplace that is free of sexual harassment and on the other, the fear of backlash. Yeah, this is again another very gray and dismal area of work. Just for your readers to know a little bit about Selena, she's a 32-year-old worker who has a bachelor's degree. She is knowledgeable about labor laws, and she was a very confident woman. And uh, she said to me that she had seen so much sexual harassment on the factory floor that she wanted to do something to help the women. And in her factory, she was able to get one of the assembly line supervisors fired because he was being sexually abusive to a young woman. Now, Selena is an anomaly. There are very few female workers who can stand up like that. It's usually the worker who stands up and speaks out is the one who gets fired. And I asked her how she was doing it, and it's because she became a leader in her community of workers. She made connections with uh, local politicians who also want these 
workers to come to their rallies when they have political rallies. So they kind of tap into these local leaders. But the broader picture that you're talking about, other young girls, and, you know, as I said, the average age of female worker entering the garment industry is about 15 years. She's coming from rural to urban areas. She knows nothing about how factory work operates. She knows very little about the city. It's all very seductive in the beginning, only to find out that these are all seductions and nothing more. So for them, it's very hard. So what is the solution? Because if they speak up, they're thrown out of the factory. And, you know, there are many other people outside the factory gates waiting to get these jobs. So from the perspective of a factory owner, you know, these women are disposable bodies and they tell them, okay, fine, if you don't want to work, go ahead. I will, you know, I can get more people. What we need is more labor rights organizations teaching them about their rights, monitoring these factories to make sure that they have trade union reps. So after the 2013 Rana Plaza factory collapse, Western countries, especially EU, demanded that the Bangladeshi government regulate this industry. They put a trade union rep in all factories that factory workers are allowed to unionize. Previously, the government made it very difficult for them to unionize. It was never banned, but the requirements for starting a union were onerous, so they couldn't really do that only at the time of my research around, say, 2017. My last trip to Bangladesh was in 2018. About 2% of the workforce was unionized, and we have a 4 million workforce of women workers. And the NGO I worked with, Gormon Jibinari, that's a labor rights NGO, they were doing a lot of these educational workshops. And I think that's where I found women who were learning about their rights. Of course, once you move into the factory floor, it becomes a totally different story, right? I'm not sure to what extent these women are able to hold up their voices when they're inside the factory floor. But having this link between an outside organization, which acts as a watchdog, and the workers is very important. And uh, I think we need more of that. There's not enough of that right now. The other thing I should mention Many of the Western retail buyers have also clamped down on factory owners, telling them that they have to limit these incidents of sexual harassment. And factory owners have also realized that when they have sexual harassment on the factory floor, it creates disruptions in the workflow, which means lower profitability and productivity. So there are many factory managers now that are saying that this will not be tolerated. However, that's still a small number of what's going on. In your opinion, did the prevalence of sexual harassment redefine or influence women workers' perception of love, sex, and self-worth? While your work focuses on older women, is there research on younger girls, in particular those whose first sexual experience might be sexual assault? And if that is the case, what impact does that have on their relationship with their bodies, with men, etc. I haven't come across research that is looking at younger women's experience of sexual assault, trauma, and their relationship to how they feel about their bodies, how they feel about men. I think that research is forthcoming because sexual harassment in the workplace in Bangladesh has become a big hot topic now. But the women that I spoke with who had uh, sexual experience, sexual assault, 
And they did tell me that I could speak about it since they wanted the global consumer to know the kinds of things they have to go through in order to put food on their table and to put that T-shirt on your back. When we talk about sexual harassment in the Western context or even in the broader context, it has a very different meaning than how the workers see sexual harassment. For the workers, sexual harassment means like a sexual assault, an attempted rape or rape. Whereas the touching of the body of someone or you know, saying something to someone that's sexually explicit, unwanted gestures like that, fall within the domain of sexual harassment. So that's one thing that, again, the organization Karmo Jibinari that I was working with were trying to teach the workers that, you know, you have unwanted gestures, touching, even spoken words that you don't want, hey, honey, or whatever. Those are also examples of sexual harassment. You must feel safe and respected when you're at work. So that is happening with the women who had been, and they were not young women who told me about their, you know, sexual assault. And I didn't ask any of the younger women about it either, because I think it would have been too traumatizing for them, because they don't have that time to sort of recover in some ways emotionally. And of course, there's no such thing as therapy available in Bangladesh for someone who's going through this kind of a crisis. But some of the older women, not these are not very older women, but you know, women who have had this experience told me that uh, it was horrific. But none of them told me that it changed their relationship to men or to how they feel about their bodies. They did say sometimes I felt very unclean after it happened. But I didn't really ask them that question, so I cannot answer that for you. And I'm sure that the trauma stays like deep scars because you are in a social space where you cannot talk about these things. Especially for garment workers in the 1990s, early 2000s, they were considered as wayward women who have come out of their village homes to work in factories. They stay late at night because they usually do overtime work sometimes till 12 o'clock, two in the morning. A lot of people in the neighborhood would say, and in villages, what do these women do? They must be quote unquote sex workers. They must be going out with men because they work together with men. So they already have that layer of you know, social stigma that people attach to their identities as garment workers, and they fight against that a lot. So when these kinds of incidents happen, many of them do not talk about it. But I do want to mention one thing, that the discourse around rape in Bangladesh has shifted in the last 30 years, and that is largely due to the work of NGOs, because in the past, even in a village, if a woman got raped, nobody would talk about it because it was shameful. It was the woman's fault. Today, if a woman gets raped, her family will take it to court. I mean, to the police station, file what is known as an FIR and report it and try to even take it to court. So it has shifted, not completely, but considerably from being an incident of shame for the woman and her family to a crime against the woman and her family. And I think that's a very important shift. And thankfully for the work that NGOs working on these social issues have done, I can see that change. And I'm sure that change will come with this younger generation of women 
in the factories who will be able to speak out about these things more openly. I'm hopeful. Do you also think that one can see a shift in masculinity? I mean, it's probably not a good idea at the end of the day to essentialize femininities and masculinities. And do you see some change? I see a change in some of the younger men. And that, and that's a very good question. I mean, you know, we need to study how men think of themselves and how their social roles are changing because their social roles are changing, right? Often the woman works in the factory, maybe makes more money than the husband. So the roles are changing. Many of the husbands of the women in these um, factories, and I use the word husbands and not partners because husband is the word that's used in Bangladesh. And I'm trying to be authentic to what these women say and not translate everything into a Euro-American centric discourse. Many of them would, you know, they would feed the children because the woman uh, could not come back from her factory work by six o'clock. She has to do overtime, for example, won't get home till later. But she would still cook the meal in the morning. He would heat it up in the evening, but feed. But it's something that you wouldn't see in a village context. And when I asked them about it, they said that um, I see that by my wife working, we make more money. We can have a better life. So yes, you know, if she stays and works overtime, we make more money. And overtime is where most of the money comes from if they can work overtime because their regular pay is not enough for them to live on. So I encourage that our children can have better clothes, maybe better schooling, etc. Money is a big factor here. She's making more money, let her make more money. So she's still working very hard to uh, support the family. The other thing I found was among the sons, and I interviewed adult sons of both garment workers and non-garment worker women, just to get a sense of the difference. And I found that the adult sons who were raised in the city by their mothers had a better understanding of the roles of these women, that the mothers work very hard, the conditions are harsh, and they're working hard to help them. So they had respect for a working woman. The men who had grown up in villages had not seen this dynamic between their parents, that is the mothers working outside, the father is sometimes helping the mother. They have a different attitude. They just felt that if I get married, my wife should both be a garment worker, bring money, but also take care of me, right? And then the other interesting thing is that when I asked these young men, they're around the ages of 18 to 22, would you marry a garment worker? All of them said no. Even the ones who were the sons of garment workers who said that they value what their mother is doing. And I said, well, your mother is a garment worker. Why are you saying no? Is she not a good woman? And they said, oh, no, my mother's a good woman because she works hard to pay for my life. She's working for us, the family. But these young women who are coming into the factories, they're bad women because they're just asking for things. They have multiple boyfriends and they're just looking around to find who can give them the most. So attitudes towards women have not really changed that much, but it has shifted to some degree. I'm not sure if I answered your question. You absolutely have. In fact, I was very pleased to learn that sons of women workers have compassion for their mothers, Yes, but how the compassion doesn't translate when it comes to finding their own partners. And I wonder whether that complicated relationship towards femininity is also a reflection of their uncertainties about, you know, the life that is becoming chaotic all around them. 
we talk about crises of masculinity across the world, you know, South Korea and in Japan, and of course in, in India, everywhere. Um, your reference to Berlin's notion of cruel optimism is a particularly interesting framework. It helps us understand the logic of women workers as in navigated betrayal, subjugation, and emotional desolation. You also bring in Freeman's analysis, which mm-hmm. argues that a lot of forward-looking aspirations don't often come to fruition, and yet they continue to motivate and play a substantial role in the workers' thought processes. To what extent, in your opinion, is that a function of capitalist notions intended to perpetuate global capitalism by convincing workers that by working hard, they'll achieve what they want? And to what extent are cruel optimistic attachments a way for women to get through the day, albeit in conflict with their actual lives? It honestly appears to be a deeply harmful psychological trap. Definitely. And, you know, Lauren Balan's cruel optimism, I think, is a very useful analytic frame to think about what was happening with these women, because how were they coping with their everyday despairs in some ways? Because at the end of the day, there was such an emptiness in their lives, especially the older women. Yet the next morning they were going to work. Cruel optimism is the notion that despite knowing that some object or some sentiment, right, can harm us, we still attach ourselves to that because it gives us a cluster of promises. Maybe this may happen. Maybe, to quote these women, to go back into their lives, maybe my husband will tonight hold me in a tight embrace. But it doesn't happen because their lives, as I said, are cascades of seductions and betrayals. And the missing embrace, as I call it, the embrace of someone loving them, whether it's their husband, whether it's their child, their adult son, whether it's the state, you know, the factory owners, somebody that holds them. But they know that it's not going to happen, yet they believe in it. And they believe in it because that seduction of belief that maybe that little tinge of, uh, you know, that it could happen is what I think makes them go through the day. Of course, you know, global capitalism is very much as worked, as Carla Freeman's work shows, is that it's a bewitching life that global capitalism has opened up for these workers. They come to the city, it's shiny, full of objects, seductions, and things that might happen in their lives. You know, they see fancy things, restaurants, happy people, they watch on television lives of upper class women looking beautiful and they want all that and they feel that you know maybe it will happen and that's what capitalism keeps on selling to them your life will be better if you work you can pull yourself up by the bootstraps very neoliberal idea of like you do it work hard it'll come to you but it doesn't at, at the end of the day and i realized that what makes them go through life is hope If not me, perhaps my child. And they told me this, that, you know, okay, maybe I won't have all this, but my child will. And there was this young worker who went to Jordan to work. And she said, I asked her, why did she want to go to Jordan? She's in her mid-20s when she went to Jordan. She said, I saw these beautiful pictures of clean, shiny roads and beautiful houses and shopping centers. And I felt that, you know, that world was waiting for me. If I went there, I would be able to see all this and participate in this. 
But when I got there, I was kept in a compound next to the factory. I never hardly ever went out. And it was drab and dingy and not a happy place, but pretty joyless place. And then she said, you know, perhaps that world of shiny objects and promises exists, but it's not for people like me. And that's a sad but a very true comment. So these women, even when they have Berlant's cruel optimism or Carla Freeman's neoliberal swirl of excitements, they know this world is not waiting to welcome them. But they still want it, if not for themselves, for their future generations. That's very beautifully said. I'd like to turn to Mahmouda, the older woman worker. It was really heartbreaking to read about her and I can only assume that it encapsulates the experience of a lot of older women workers. Her case is interesting since it demonstrates a success story of this cruel optimism, you know, with her older son, and a more classic tragic outcome of cruel optimism in the context of her younger son and daughter. I felt that her story raised questions about the relationship that women have to navigate between patriarchal demands and family dynamics while men are meant to be the breadwinners, which, as you know from the book, is disrupted by women's involvement in the garment industry. And women are meant to be caretakers in every sense of the word. So the question is, in what ways does capitalist patriarchy propagate ideas of what and how women and men should contribute to their families' well-being at women's expense. I feel like this dynamic perpetuates symbolic ideas of women as martyrs and that their suffering is worth it for the greater good. Yes, that is very true what you're saying. Women are the ones who are supposed to give unconditionally, you know, um, their earnings, their labor, their love, their care to perpetuate uh, the social reproduction. And it's an ongoing old story, but it gets aggravated when women are part of the industrial workforce. In terms of the dynamics that are emerging within the context of the Bangladesh uh, garment factory women and their families is that these women are moving from rural to urban settings. And I just want to mention one thing here that this movement of factory workers from rural to urban is not like European industrialization when workers moved from the country to the city and there was a break and the workers started new lives in the city. What we see in Bangladesh and many parts of South Asia and Asia is that it's a circular relationship. Women move to the city to work because most of the factories are in the city and the you know, peri-urban areas now. Some of them are moving to rural areas though. But they still maintain a close contact with the family through cell phone usage, for example. They also go back for all the religious high holidays, deaths, weddings. You know, for a day or two, they'll go back because roads and highways connect all the villages to the city now. So they have that circularity with the family. But what you're beginning to see, though, when they're coming to the city is that the family, it's becoming nuclearized from having this extended kin network in the village. The woman comes here on her own. Sometimes she is already an abandoned woman. She may meet somebody in the city. She marries that person. They create a nuclearized family. But this woman still has ties to her extended family of how she grew up. But the son and daughter, especially the sons she's raising, they are growing up in a nuclear family setting. 
they grow up, they fall in love with somebody who is also in the city, and then they move away. And they kind of transfer part of the emotional life and their resources to their new family. And that is a shock to the system for a lot of these older women because they expected the, their sons and they invested more money in um, the education of their sons to take care of them in their old age. But then they see that there's a break in that relationship. You know, I sort of call it, you know, raising Cain in a way that you raise and then a son to be someone who would take care of you, but in turn doesn't. It becomes, in some ways, psychologically violent towards you, uncaring. And it's part of capitalism, urbanization, and industrialization, and the changes in the family structure. So all of these things are happening simultaneously, but the burden is borne by these women workers, who are the catalysts of change, if you really think about it. And I admire the kind of changes they are bringing about you know, in their personal lives. It's quite admirable, the face of so many impediments in their growth as human beings, as full human beings. In some way, I'm reminded of the mother's longing for her son as encapsulated in Apur Shanshar, Satyajit Ray's movie. <laughs> the mother just yes. waits. The son has gone away to the city and she just waits. I mean, yeah. her case is, I mean, she's not a catalyst of change because, you know, she, she remains in the village and she hasn't, she doesn't have that sense of agency. I mean, she has a different kind of an agency with mm-hmm. regard to her mother-in-law. That's a different thing but um, a twisted sense of agency. But she just waits. The mother just waits. Well, I think that's become our global story in some ways because most of the world is now so diasporic. So many people have left their birthplace to go to other places to make a living because the birthplace no longer can sustain the population because of environmental degradation, lack of investments in the context of Bangladesh and many other countries. In the developing South, the investment doesn't go into these rural areas, but into more capitalist production centers like building factories for car production, etc., etc. And so these rural areas cannot really sustain these populations. Yes, if someone was to go and do an ethnography of the parents left behind, it would be an interesting story to find out what are the wants and desires and expectations of the mothers of these garment workers, right? And I hope someone will do that. I think it'll be a heartbreaking story because when they send away their children, they have a lot of, uh, you know, uh, I think hopes and aspirations of also the good life coming into their lives and into the lives of their daughters. For women whose marriages were abusive, is there any evidence to suggest that the commodification of women workers contributed to how their husbands viewed them? By denying women workers of their personhood, did the garment industry's commodification and dehumanization of women workers influence how their husbands and even their sons see them? Absolutely. If the women did not have access to wage-earning potential, they would have been treated differently, evaluated differently. And here's the kind of a toxic situation, because once these women become wage earners, they have a certain amount of autonomy over themselves. One of the things I found with these women is that they told me that the happiest day in their lives was the day that they got paid. They would say, I would count every single note in my hand. And it felt very good that I today got some money. My self-worth increased. 
my labor matters. I can work. I can pay for myself. So all these things are bundled up in their selfhood of who they are and who they can be now. But it's the way capitalism targets them is to commodify them as conduits of capital for the men in their lives and also their families. The families also make tremendous demands on these women's earnings. And so it does deny their personhood again, although on the one hand, they feel very good about being able to earn. But when they come home with that money, it changes uh, because there are all these phone calls from their parents asking for money to pay for you know, a new roof or pay for someone's college education, a sibling's college education or pay for um, medical bills. The husbands, many of them who often abandon them, you will find that on the payday, they come back to them and say, I love you very much. And for a few days, they will stay with them and then they will demand the money. When the women try not to give them the money because some of these organizations that help them with their labor rights and workers' rights issues, they teach them to open their bank accounts in their own name. And when their husband or lover finds that out, they will demand that they give that money to them. And I I document some of the stories in my book, but it becomes very toxic, right? Because the women, instead of being seen as women, are now seen as kind of money-making machines for the men and also to some extent their families. Everybody is making demands on them. Also, the state is making demands on them, right? Capital is making demands on them. The factory managers are making demands on them. But very few people are really listening to them as to what they want. And even when that is done, like, okay, you know, have some autonomy over yourself so that you can live independently of all these people who are creating so much dissonance in your life, it doesn't work very well yet. You know, I think we have a long road to travel. I'm not sure, though, how we would change this narrative because it has to happen on many levels. I think when men also get gainful employment, which they're not getting, it's about 20% of the workforce is in the garment industry is men and 80% is women. And as long as this inequality in terms of opportunities in the workplace operate, you will have this dynamic. At the same time, if you look at why men are not being hired, it's because factory management says they are not good workers, they don't listen, they talk back, whereas the women can be disciplined very easily. So there's a lot of manipulation of social attitudes that exist, right? And then those are being exploited both by capital and the factory management. You know, it's a good question. I wish I had an answer, but I don't (laughs) have a very good answer to this. I think it's a process that maybe 10 years down the road, we might see some change. I don't know in which direction it'll go. On page 197, you say that love here in the broadest sense meant respect from their employers as workers. This quote is of particular importance since it frames love in its various forms as a necessary aspect of a fulfilling life, which we often overlook in favor of focusing on financial status, which is equally important, especially for oppressed people. However, I do question whether, in the absence of love and respect from the employer, can there be some kind of a deregulated global capitalist economy that revolves around subjugation and exploitation? Can an employer not on an individual level, but in the actual workplace industry, 
have genuine respect and compassion for its workers when it's beholden to profit and the Western economic marketplace? In all respects, no. It is very difficult to have respect and compassion for your workers when you are driven by the profit margin. Uh, the factory owners are beholden to global retail buyers who are pushing for rock bottom prices. Then, of course, the global consumer in the West who's also looking for rock bottom prices. So it's, you know, kind of like a cascading set of pressures. And the whole system is set up to exploit people who are very vulnerable. And the only exit out of that would be to have effective trade union organizers and organizations who can help curb some of this exploitative behavior and also investigative journalism and bloggers who can bring this story out and tell people what is going on, shame the people who are doing this, the factory owners and the retail buyers who all know what's going on. And that's the only way we can try to think about respect for the worker, compassion for the worker when the worker is ill and cannot work. Also, the state has to uphold its labor laws. Bangladesh has pretty good labor laws, but it's not about having the laws on the books. It's about implementing those laws. That's where the system breaks down, right? There is in Bangladesh very close connection between these factory owners and politicians, MPs, members of parliament, right? So these, all these close connections make it very difficult for workers and those who help workers to really have genuine reform. But that said, I will say that in my research, I found some managers at the factory level who were compassionate towards their older workers, and they did not necessarily let them go when they became like 45 years old, because it's very, very rare to find them at that age in working in factories, who said that, you know, you've been with me for a long time, and I know you're a skilled worker. It may take you a little longer to do something, but you are a better worker than that 18-year-old standing outside the factory doors who may be able to make things faster, but not as well. So, but that's a rarity. And I think that what happens with this kind of capitalist production structure is that it also dehumanizes the factory managers because they are under such scrutiny of, you know, what is going on the factory floor, what is going on in the assembly lines, because their managers are pushing on them to extract as much work as they can. The assembly line must not stop. It must keep on, you know, rolling. Uh, the workflow has to constant. So I would say that, you know, the whole process of how we manufacture apparel in this case is extremely dehumanizing. So we would have to change the culture of how we produce and how we consume. Those two things are linked. Our consumption has to change. We as consumers in the West must demand better accountability. I think we have the power to do that whereas a lot of people in these factories don't have the power to do that. So finally, do you want to talk to us about the title of your book, Cast-Offs of Capital? It's really very interesting and arresting. Cast-Offs of Capital captures what happens to these women. They are used by capital for as long as they're deemed to be productive, but 
once they have exhausted their utilitarian function for capital, meaning when capital deems them to be not as productive, uh, not as fast as putting out gazillion amounts of clothes that they want them to make, they are then thrown off. And then they're just like the remnants on the floor of a factory floor. They're forgotten. And it is true that they're forgotten because then they become invisible. They leave the factory and then they go out into the world, which is also very uninviting and cold, and they disappear. So they are, and they're forgotten. And when I was doing my research and I asked, where do these women go, the older women? Nobody knew. So they are in so many ways, symbolically and physically thrown out of the narrative of work and they become invisible to us. They're invisible to begin with, right? We don't think about who makes our clothes. And, you know, one thing I would like to end with is that I tell this to students when I talk about my research. And, to you know, I've talked to older people and people outside the university and also, you know, in university settings. I always ask people to look at the labels on their clothes and then to think that someone, somewhere, made that and that person's hopes desires and dreams are woven into that piece of clothing you're wearing so you and that worker are entwined do not forget that and then think what you can do to make it a better world you really put it very beautifully i'm sure your students are very lucky to have you as a professor thank you so much for talking to me today uh, dr kareem it's been an honor and a pleasure to talk about your book and thank you very much for your time thank you very much dr alka kurian i hope your listeners uh, will enjoy this and learn something and do something to change the garment industry absolutely thank you the production assistance for this episode was provided by the language learning center university of washington seattle and the student research assistant anaga dirisala